Hello and welcome to Big Ben History, a podcast where I'm interviewing all of those in the room when Margaret Thatcher resigned in 1990. If you like what you hear, please do leave a review on iTunes. Thatcher's exit was a moment of perhaps unsurpassed political drama, but in today's episode, our conversation centres on an event far more real than the end of a political career. John Wakem was a close friend of Margaret Thatcher, her chief whip, and by 1990, her energy secretary. His decision to pursue a career in politics affected his life and that of his family in a way he could never have imagined. The explosion came at three o'clock precisely. At street level, stone and glass debris was blasted across Brighton Front. At first, there was confusion as smoke and dust shrouded the hotel. As ambulance, police and firefighting officers arrived, the full horror was revealed. The front of the hotel was blown apart. In 1984, his wife Roberta was killed in the Brighton bomb. He was terribly injured. He told me what happened. When the bomb went off, we, um, our, uh, Roberta and I were in bed on the fourth floor, next door to Mrs Thatcher. The bomb was meant for her, not, not me. I, I'm pretty certain that Roberta was killed instantly. And I fell four stories. And the only reason I'm alive is that uh, a girder came down and stopped me being crushed. And some springs of a bed ended up over me, which gave me some air. And I was seven hours under that rubble before they dug me out. And were you conscious? Yes, most of the time. Uh, I'm, I think I'm, I, I, I now think I probably lapsed in and out of consciousness. But they uh, produced two men. Uh, one was over the, was directing the, the, the diggers, and the other man was sent in by the doctors to keep talking to me. Because the doctor said, if you can keep him from going into unconsciousness, we have a better chance of saving him. They talked, and it was just terrific. Anyway, about a year later, that man's wife rang me and said, he is in the Atkinson Morley Hospital with a brain tumor, and he's asked to see you. I went to see him, and he died the next day. Quite something. It's quite a story, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. And the other thing that was terribly interesting was I was at a dinner here to do with the police service. And sitting on my right was a man who was the deputy commissioner at Scotland Yard. Actually going to retire the next day because the commissioner couldn't come. And he said, of course, we met before. And I said, oh. He said, I was a young copper guarding your door at Brighton in the hospital. My first day's service, that's where I was sent to do it. Look, look out here. And he said, I, I then moved to the Met. He said, I'm now a deputy commissioner and I'm retiring tomorrow. I mean, just reading her memoirs yesterday, obviously what happened in Brighton yeah. and everything like that. Did, did, did that form a bond between you? Oh, I think the bond was there before. What formed a bond there, which was very much more interesting really in a way, was that I lost my wife. It was terrible. I had an eight-year-old and a seven-year-old boy. <coughs> but somehow, the human spirit recovers. 
And I had the most wonderful secretary, Alison, who's been my wife now for 33 years, who turned up at Brighton, uh, moved in somewhere, I don't know where she stayed, and she came in every morning, first thing in the morning, uh, with the papers. She never left until I was uh, asleep at night, except on two days, once to hear her father preach his retirement sermon in Sherbourne Abbey. He was for 17 years the Queen's domestic chaplain. Uh, and once to take her mother to a consultant who told her the mother had got terminal cancer. Otherwise she was there every single day. And uh, she organized, I mean she did things that I couldn't believe possible. I mean, for example, she found who my solicitor was. She rang up and she said, do you know who the boy's godparents are? So she rang them up. She said, Ben's playing football on Saturday. He was seven, you know. Will you be there to support him? And she, she just organized everything. And, it, and she'd worked for Mrs. Thatcher for many years. And she was very close to Mrs. Thatcher. That was what brought us close together. And Mrs. Thatcher came down to stay with us many times afterwards. And uh, Alison, when she went to work for Mrs. Thatcher, when she was 21 or something, she said to Mrs. Thatcher, I will never speak to the press on your behalf unless you tell me to. You can rely on me not to. I mean, Alison was closer to Mrs. Thatcher than either the chil her children. I mean, she took them to school. She was only a couple of years older than they were, but she took them to school. And when Mrs. Thatcher died, the Times rang Alison up and they said, we know your rule about not speaking about the press. Now she's dead. Do you want to say anything? And Alison said, it is 42 years ago. And I see no reason why I should change my mind. <laughs> they printed it on the front page. I'm sorry, it's upset. Of course. It's, oh, I, I didn't mean to upset no, you. No, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. It, 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 they printed it on the front page of the Times. So that was, that was the closest, really. That was the closest. But just reading her memoirs, she talks a lot. She seems to have been bossing your, your doctors around while oh. you were ill in Brighton and oh, finding yeah. some El Salvadorian specialists to find oh. your legs. Oh, so yeah. It's a wonderful image. Oh, yeah. Well, she was. She was. It so happened the doctor who was in charge of me at Brighton, I'd been at school with, but I actually didn't really know him at school. I mean, I can't pretend he was a friend of mine. I didn't know. And he had for a short while been a member of parliament, and he was a consultant now. And he, he, he looked after me, and I was in a, a, and I was obviously heavily drugged and in a pretty bad way. And I picked up the phone one Sunday, and I rang uh, number 10. And I said, can I speak to the Prime Minister? And uh, uh, they said, well, she's not, not here, but can, can we take a message? Can the duty clerk take a message? And I said, yes. I said, uh, I'm in hospital uh, where I am. And I said, I think the hospital's closed for the weekend. And I think they've left me behind. You know. <laughs> and so she rang uh, Tony Trafford, who she and they'd both been members of parliament together. They both got into the house on the same day and said, come to lunch at Chequers uh, that Sunday. And when Tony got there, he said, oh, talked about my medical state. 
She said, I'm not worried about that. She said, it's, it's mine I'm worried about. And then she told him this story, you see, that, uh, that, that I, that, that I that, you know, I vaguely think, remember doing it, but I, I, but I was obviously quite pretty heavily drugged and I didn't know what I was saying. Do you get across at all at the moment, all this rows about the Irish border and stuff like that? As someone who feels it personally, well, do, you, do you think we've forgotten history? Well, I think, I think we've, we've forgotten history, but I also uh, take the view uh, that I, I try my best to feel sorry for the people who think they can solve these problems by bombs and bullets. I, you know, of course, you can't allow that to happen and the world has got to take a tough line. But I feel, inherently feel sorry for them to think that this is how they think the world should be. That, you know, there's, there's sick men in some ways. Six years later, John Wakeham found himself at the centre of Margaret Thatcher's fight for political survival. She had beaten Michael Heseltine in the ballot for leadership of the Conservative Party. But under the rules, her margin of victory was too small to avoid a second ballot. A challenge she thought she could swat away had suddenly assumed lethal proportions. It was time to call the political fixer of his generation, John Wakeham. But before we discuss that, I asked if you remembered the meeting where she called time on her period in Downing Street. I remember it extremely well, but of course the issues and the, and the, the, the work was all in the 24 hours or so before when, we, when there was a lot of things going on. So the, the cabinet meeting was like, like you would expect. Uh, the, the Lord Chancellor uh, was handed by Robin Butler, who was the head of the civil service and the cabinet secretary, a note at the beginning of the meeting which he said, you might find this useful, which were some words to say when he, he knew what was going to happen. So there were some people a bit emotional about it, but the decisions had been taken and uh, we just got on with it. Tell us about the build-up to it, because, of course, you had an absolutely crucial role as called the cavalry were called to try and rescue her. Well, yes. I mean, I was in the middle of um, privatising electricity at the time, and I had the night she was in Versailles that night, on the meeting before, the day before, um, I had my biggest, biggest meeting uh, in a hotel just by Marble Arch, uh, where I was flogging the... Uh, all, the, all the companies. And um, so uh, I, they telephoned and said, would, would I see her as uh, soon as she got back? And I said, look, I can't get there till about half past 12. But um, and they said, well, she won't be back much before then. So I agreed to come to number 10 after my meetings uh, and then at, at about half past 10. In the meantime, I got hold of uh, uh, somebody else to say, look, I can't do anything today, but can you suss out what you think the situation is to brief me bef beforehand, which which I did. Uh, I'm not quite sure whether I should say who the person was, but never mind. He was a good colleague of mine. Anyway, um, she came back, and uh, we had a meeting. Uh, she said that they had the, the, the 1922 officers and the um, you know, the men in the grey suits were all coming to see her. About, and it's the only time in my time with Mrs. Thatcher where there was beer and sandwiches in number 10. I said to her something like this. I said, look, uh, stand up for what you believe to be right. There is no credit 
in backing down if you think you, you if you think it's right just stand up and let's see how we get on anyway uh, we had the meeting and uh, which was pretty ineffectual what was not revealed at that meeting and quite rightly by the person I had asked to investigate things for was that Peter Morrison's assessment of the position was wrong because Peter Morrison, in his naivety, I suppose you would call it, had assumed that all junior ministers were going to support Mrs. Thatcher. Uh, and therefore he said she was going to win easily. Well, of course, they weren't all going to support her by any manner of means. And this my uh, informant found out. He did not say this at the meeting where we had the beer and sandwiches, as afterwards he said, I didn't think it right for me to say that because there were non-members of the government there and, and it wasn't my job to announce that sort of thing at the meeting. So afterwards I had a chat with her and I said um, that I thought uh, she ought to consult her cabinet as to what the position was. Oh, she said, oh, I'm very happy to do that, to talk to them. I said, no, not altogether, one by one. And the reason for that was that I knew there were four or five of them who would not have stayed in her government. And if there'd been a general meeting uh, where she got a tremendous amount of support, which because the, I mean, the Ken Bakers and the other people would have That's made it, and yeah. would say all the wonderful things, and, and we'd all go on, and they'd just sit tight and wait, and the Chris Pattons and the Michael Rifkins and the others would sit there wait their moment and it wouldn't happen and she would not get a true picture of what the situation was so I but, but was your purpose there were you trying to get her out or were you trying to be honest with her i was trying to be honest with her i was trying to say look this is i mean this this is this is what uh, what i thought was the right thing for her to do to find out what was going on i had no desire to get her out at all uh and um so that was that so she agreed to do that and then the next thing i heard on television uh, Norman Tebbit announced that I had been appointed her campaign manager. Nobody ever asked me. I never. I, I didn't know. I, I, I just heard it on television. So what could I do? Does that does that speak of a bit of chaos? I mean, everyone says the Peter Morrison run campaign was was inept. Yeah. What, what was was the whole? What, was there a degree of farce surrounding the, the, her campaign oh, to survive as leader? Yeah, I, I don't. I don't really know. I mean, I was campaign manager for about six hours, so I don't think I can. Uh, I uh, have very much uh, comment on that. Not that I would want to refuse, uh, but I, I couldn't have refused anyway. I mean, that would have been terrible to, to refuse. So what I did was I called in, I mean, I was no longer chief whip, but I called in the three whips that I could get hold of who I thought were the most experienced. And they told me what they thought of the situation. And every one of them told me that they thought she she couldn't survive. They said no. So we then started on uh, talking to the the, the, the the people. And I said to some of these people, I said, look, you've got the opportunity. You owe it to her to tell her what you think, truthfully. Uh, is this cabinet ministers you're talking yeah, about or MPs? The cabinet. And then 
the, the, the she saw some of the cabinet ministers, and they all they all said, "Look, we'll vote for you, and we'll be loyal, and all that, but you're going to lose." Some of them said that, and then there was a there was some quite amusing bits when Alan Clark came in. Not he wasn't in the cabinet. He wasn't invited. He came in, and he said, uh, "Prime Minister," he said, "Fight on," he said, "Fight on." Of course you'll lose, he said, but fight on. What a glorious defeat. And then I pushed off, you see. And then Peter Brook came in, going to a city dinner in white tie and tails. And he said, well, of course, there was a day when I was at Oxford uh, that white tie and tails was what you had to wear when you made big decisions. And he was supportive. They were all, they were all supportive of her, but some said that... She wouldn't. She wasn't. She wouldn't win. So that was that. Um, and can I just stop you? The, 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 the sort of fat version of history was that you were plotting. The, this was part of a plan, or do you see it just as a reflection of reality? No, I, I was trying to find out what the situation was. I mean, I didn't. I knew nothing about it. I'd been. I'd been about two hours in. in, in I mean, it was much of information to me as it was to anything else. I mean, people told me things, but it all happened in a few minutes. I mean, the, the, the idea that, uh, uh, that uh, somehow I was, I was in part, some part of a plot. God, it was a bloody quick plot if it was. And were you, were you surprised by what you were finding? I mean, you were very busy. Did, did you not realize that she was in trouble well, I even mean, before I, the result? I, I, How quickly? I, I mean, I, you know, when you're privatizing electricity, which was the biggest privatization the world had ever seen, you weren't fiddling about with other things. You were 100% involved in that. So it was all new to me. I mean, I knew there was difficulties, but I didn't know how much, much, much they were. And um, uh, so uh, I then, so she saw a number of people, and at about 7 o'clock, she said to me, I don't think I've got enough support. And I said, oh, well, I'm not sure about that. I'm not sure about that. I said, I wouldn't uh, jump quickly to a conclusion about that. I said, I'd think about it a bit more. And so she said, well, I'm going, going back to the flat to see Dennis. And off she went. And then she made a decision. But I wasn't anything to do with that. I didn't, I didn't get involved. So uh, a, a, short, a short campaign? Well, it wasn't a campaign at all. I was trying to brief myself what, what the hell to do. I, I, didn't, uh, didn't, I didn't do anything. I mean, you know, uh, I, I, I can't... I mean, I know that there, there are people who... Who, who say I, I, my, it was all part of my plot to get rid of her. And do you know how that came out? You know, it was why? a book, wasn't it, Adam Watkins? Well, Adam Watkins. Do you know how that came out? Well, just say it was one of the first books I ever read about politics, yeah. and then I've read it. Yeah. yeah, well, it was because he had dinner with Ken Clark at the Garrick, where I'm a member as well, but he had, he had dinner together and drank a lot of wine, and Ken Clark gave him this idea that he thought that he thought that I really thought she ought to retire. Well, I, did, I, I hadn't got reached the point of knowing whether she should. In fact, um, it, it, as it happens, uh, she, uh, John Major won the next election. She wouldn't, I doubt very much whether she would have won the election if, she'd, if, if she stayed on. But I, that was all news to me. I mean. And what's your, I mean, you're a former chief whip. At this yeah. stage, you're, 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 you're very busy doing other things. But why, why did they lose faith in her? Why weren't they more loyal, given that even though she was in trouble, she had won them three elections in a row? Well, uh, I, 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 I don't, I'll tell you this. Um, 
if there is anything that is more important than winning an election to a member of parliament is, is keeping his own seat. That is number one. They look upon the success or failure uh, of their careers as to whether they can hold their seats. And I think a lot of them thought they weren't going to hold their seats. That's why they got jittery. No matter about the policies. God's sake, we can get around the policies. Uh, they, they, not a number of them thought they were going to lose their seats. Well, then they knew in that. That's what, that what, that's what happens when things go badly wrong. She seems to have fallen out with a lot of her cabinet in the build-up to it. And particularly, there's one cabinet meeting. Do you remember a cabinet meeting where she dressed down Geoffrey Howe shortly before he resigned? Oh, well, Geoffrey Howe, um, it, was, it was always tricky. Well, it wasn't always tricky. One of the most great moments was the very first, I think, IMF meeting or whatever it was in Tokyo when, they, when she first became prime minister and Geoffrey was the first chancellor, uh, it, it was the chancellor. And Geoffrey made a speech to all of these people saying, I hope you don't underestimate our new prime minister. She is the most remarkable woman that you will very often meet. A really very, very strong support. But she did have a, she did have a way of um, upsetting him. When she didn't like a policy, she, was irrita she irritated him a bit by, uh, for example, over uh, South African sanctions. So we'd have a meeting go on, and we'd, she'd gradually concede what a fair bit on the way. Anyway. And then we'd have a meeting next week, carry on where we left off. Well, we didn't carry on where we left off. She went back to the beginning again, and Jeffrey was, Jeffrey was getting very angry. We thought we agreed this last week, you see. And I did, I did take him out to lunch once, or maybe twice, in which I said to him, look, for God's sake, you know, you just have to put up with a bit of this. We'll help keep the show together. This compared with Ken Baker, who was education secretary. He, was, he, was, he handled her brilliantly. He'd make her laugh. He'd tell a joke when she was being difficult. And, and, and Jeffrey Howe wasn't a great jokester. No, he wasn't. No, they were, they, they were just two different people. And, and, and Ken could, could laugh it off and, uh, and just do it. But he, Jeffrey was, took it, took it too, too seriously. And it was, it was a pity, really, because uh, she was quite difficult with him. I quite agree. But, you know, and, and, you know maybe, maybe he'd had enough. I don't know. But uh, 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 I, I did my best to hold the show together. That's what I did. Yeah. But holding the show together, was, was this an issue of managing personalities or was it a clash of ideas? Mostly holding people together. It was, it, there were some things which were, uh, were, were a clash in ideas. For example, uh, uh, Jeffrey um, uh, was very concerned. When I was a minister in the Treasury before I was chief, he was very concerned that the owner-occupied houses, which were free of capital gains tax, which still are, was distorting the economy. Well, now you see. Yeah, well, every Treasury economist has said that. Yes, that's right. And he wanted to know whether whether I, he, he, he could talk her into think, at least thinking about whether we should some way restrict it, you know. But Mrs. Thatcher was absolutely adamant. Not that she thought it was a particularly right policy, but she knew she couldn't change it. She knew that it was just impossible to change, at certainly in that time. So there was a sort of a clash there. But mostly it was... It was it was I it was personalities and difficulties. That, that's really interesting. I've talked to lots of people about her, and they all stress not so much her ideology, but her pragmatism. Yeah. Oh yeah. But she seems to have lost her pragmatism when it came to saving her own skin. Is that fair? Well, I, I don't know. I don't know. I mean, Dennis was dead keen on her retiring. 
you've done your bit. You've done your bit. Come on and uh, let him get on with it. You know that was his view. And, and uh, so she was living in a household that was wanted her to retire. You know, uh, and she said to me um, at one time, she said, "I uh, would be prepared to retire, on, but I want to do two things before I retire. I want to as to end the war in the Gulf, first Gulf War." And I want to get inflation back down again because it started to creep up. I, she said after that, I don't know. I don't know. I actually believe her. That's what she wanted. But that's what she said. You know, she said, that's what I want to do. You see. Uh, when she did retire, resign, retire, whatever you call it, she then wanted John Major to be her successor. So she said, uh, "I'm going to come out for John." Major. I said, "Don't be daft. Everybody knows that's what you want, but." In order for John Major to be elected, he's got to get a few people who didn't vote for you. That, that's what we got. So they're not going to turn around and say, oh, Margaret Thatcher said I should vote for John Major. They, 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 you won't do them any good, you see. So shut up. And I said, I will shut up. I will say it. I am not going to say who I'm going to vote for. And I got in quite a bit of stick from one or two people in my constituency and they said they rang me and said who are you supporting you see and I said I'm not saying I'm saying nothing eventually uh, uh, she she couldn't keep quiet for more than she just burst it out and then I said who I put and looking back at Thatcher's camp I mean a lot of people see the fall of Thatcher as chapter one in the conservative war over Europe do you remember Europe being a huge dividing issue as your time as a fat in Thatcher's cabinet she always was she was always she was first, for example, she was always pretty opposed to a united Germany. She got on quite well with coal, I think, in, in a funny sort of way. Yeah. Um, but the, the, these issues didn't come up. But, I mean, the sort of issues that I got involved in was uh, when the Foreign Office said, we're going to all have to go for red passports. She, she hit the bloody roof. <laughs> she said, I'm not going to agree to that. She said, and... So we, I managed to, we managed to get it past the next election or something, and then then, then then it had to happen. You know, there were there were things of that sort. That, but she was, uh, she was, she was very interesting, really, dealing with her. Uh, of all my time in government, and I had 15 years in government, I don't think I ever went to a meeting where I felt there was anyone better briefed and better appointed than she was at the meeting, even if it was somebody else's, somebody else's uh, subject. Yeah. She was, she did her homework. She told, I think it was Norman Tebbit, she said, when it was over British Lady, she said she thought that the paper that he'd produced had no intellectual merit or some words, some words of that sort. And he was pretty cross. And in the afternoon there was another meeting and she decided he was still a bit cross and I said, well, you weren't exactly kind to him this morning, you said. She, and I, I'm not surprised he's a bit bit angry with you, you see. Oh, she said, ridiculous. She said, I get about six or eight of these meetings a day. She said, I go in and argue my corner, and sometimes I win and sometimes I don't win. I said, oh, come off it. You're the prime minister. That does make a, that does make a difference, you know. And when Mrs. Thatcher left, uh, did you miss her? Well, we, I probably saw more of her than that. You know. but, but did you miss her as a boss? No, not particularly, because then I, uh, I uh, um, with John Major became Prime Minister, who, to, with whom I was very close. 
and I used to be a, a sort of father figure, a bit to um, sort of where Willie Whitelaw had been in the past. John Major beat Michael Heseltine, and it, it, the question was, was Michael Heseltine going to be a loyal member of John Major's government, or was he going to try and make his move to oust him to get it, get, get become prime minister? He could not have been more loyal and more supportive, as a matter of fact, but we didn't know that. And then I went backwards and forwards. I mean, I was, not, I was, you know, nothing to do with it really. Went backwards and forwards. I went out to uh, Michael Hesseltine's great place in Buckinghamshire and all of that. I had lunch with him, talked to him. And I, I sort of worked out a deal that, that, that they could all live with. And I, I could also reassure John uh, that he'd got, a, she, he'd got a loyal colleague, not somebody who was waiting, you know. And so I, I enjoyed all that. So it's a remarkable set of skills. You managed to stay close to Margaret Thatcher, yeah. close to John Major, yeah. and you got invited to Michael Hesseltine's house as well. Yeah, sure. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And I'm very close. And they, they, all, they all trusted me. Peter Walker once told somebody, and that came back to me. He said, of course, John Major, he said, He's the nicest guy in politics.
put them out. They'll wake up taking up your time, but thank you so yeah. much. That, I hope that was somebody. Oh, fascinating. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. No, well, that's good. I, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to upset you. No.